This is Beyond the Couch with Bridges, a podcast at the intersection of Asian Pacific Islander, South Asian American identity, and mental health. I'm Christy. I'm Sam. And I'm Diana. We are three therapists who got together in the hopes of demystifying therapy and uplifting stories from our community. Each week, we'll connect with fellow therapists, experts, and community members about life, identity, and healing. We're so glad you're joining us today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the Couch with Bridges Mental Health. I'm Christy, and today I'm talking with Natalie Hung, who is a clinical psychologist who, among many things, specializes in Asian American racialization, intergenerational trauma, complex PTSD, and intersections of personal and social identities. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. I'm excited about what we'll talk about. But before we move into it, maybe you can share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a second generation Taiwanese American. I am also in the middle of relocating to Cambridge in the United Kingdom. So it's an interesting time for me. Yeah, I came to psychology late in my life. Um, I was actually a film studies major in undergrad, took a long detour through New York City, um, doing some film and documentary work, and then decided I wanted to be a psychologist. And so Uh 10 years later, went to grad school, and here I am. Well, so today, Natalie and I will be talking about two fundamental elements of her work in We'll break it up into two parts. So we're starting off with internal family systems and that approach to therapy and letting that move us into exploring ancestral healing in part two coming soon. So Natalie, maybe you can share a little bit about what internal family systems is, how you came to practice from an IFS perspective. IFS or internal family systems is something that spoke to me quite immediately and quite intuitively, but it wasn't where I started. So I actually was trained psychodynamically, but I always had this interest in dissociative identity disorder and I, I couldn't find people to help me with it, but it just seemed to me, it was really clear that for some people they had these parts of them and they were often really different from one one another. And at the same time, it seemed really clear to me that like everybody has parts, like everybody has different ways of showing up in the world. And so after I did end up having a lot of training with dissociative identity disorder, when I came to internal family systems, it felt really natural. So basically what it is, is it comes from the premise that we all have parts and that's natural. That's just the way things are. And actually in a lot of ways, this is kind of a return to how a lot of indigenous people think of their minds, their bodies, right? So essentially in IFS, they outline kind of three broad categories of parts So as we move through the world, um, we do get hurt, right? And that's just life. And if we don't have an environment to support us in the healing of that pain, then other parts can get thrown into these protector roles and they can protect us in different ways. And in general, there's, you know, one category of protectors that IFS calls managers who 
help us by proactively managing our lives, you know, um, keeping us functioning at our jobs or criticizing us or trying to control as many things as possible. And if those parts aren't successful at those roles, then the other kind of protector can come in. And those are called firefighters. And they come in and they try to put out the kind of emotional fire that keeps those wounds, those parts that are holding these wounds out of awareness. So firefighters can often show up like a part that needs to use substances compulsively or uh, needs to doom scroll or, you know, is addicted to their work or something like that. Mm. But what IFS aims to do is to first honor that these parts all have good intentions. The impacts of their jobs may not always feel good to other parts or society, but they're always trying their very best to protect us. And when we can gain their trust, then we can actually heal those exiled parts of us that are carrying the pain, carrying these burdens that accrue from just living life. And when we do that, then those parts can restore their kind of natural, valuable qualities, you know, that they had that, that were that were accessible before they got hurt. And then the protectors no longer have to work as hard. And they also are, they have the freedom to do roles that they actually choose to do rather than ones that they were forced to do by, you know, basically trauma. Mm. And so it can really just free up a lot of energy in the system. It can free up a lot more choice and just essentially helps you feel more alive and more like safer within yourself. Yeah. Especially with the part of restoring choice, because it sounds like you're saying the reaction or the response to hurt that we naturally sustain in being alive is more of this automatic critical, like crisis response mode not something that we choose or opt into doing. Our brain just kind of naturally does it for us. It does. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I would, I would add to that the caveat that if we have an environment though, that can help, help us like help hold the pain, help witness the pain, mm. then our brain wouldn't automatically do that, right? Like we would actually have the resources within us to be able to bear whatever we, we went through. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if you mean that when we sustain the hurt, that if we are in a safe enough space that can hold it, then it might not be coded, I guess, in the way that we would see trauma typically. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because, and that's, I mean, I think that's a really crucial piece, right? I mean, of course, bad things happen, but if we're not alone in them, they don't have to traumatize us. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have a place or a person to be with us through it, then it wouldn't scar us the way that, that it often does, unfortunately. Right. And there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Yeah. I'm considering the parts or the stories and memories that people bring into therapy is often not only an incident or an event itself, but then the lack of guidance talking about it afterwards or an adult saying, I know this happened and this is what the context was, or this is what we're going to make of it. It's more around like the absence of that kind of meaning making totally, or or a story that can make sense to a child. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because like 
children can't, they don't have the developmental capacities to handle it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really what trauma is. It's like something that's too big for what you can handle. And so you, you do need to have somebody who can do that. But if this kind of gets us into Asian American cultures, people more generally, that if the people who are around you are also traumatized, then they can't, they can't be there for you. They can't do that for you. And, you know, I think that's the kind of thing that we can see a lot is it's not any parent's fault, right? They're just, they've been traumatized and they've been traumatized by the generation before them and the generation before them and the generation before them. And it's, it's just, it's really sad. And it's, it's really hard that you can't kind of pinpoint it to any one person any at all, but like, it's also Mm. just how it is. If we take the psychodynamic perspective, it kind of seems like it starts in childhood or it seems like it starts with our parents, but it's a failure of recognizing the larger story there that there is no necessary like starting point. Yeah, exactly. It'd be unfair to have like one villain. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and really even like villains, even the villains are not the villains, right? Like they, they're part of this just sort of larger contextual world of harm that's just been going on for, you know, millennia with Mm. colonialism and imperialism and war and, you know, it's just big. It's just so big. Like how could someone not be made of many parts instead of this like wholeness when there's so much segmentation in general? Yeah. When we were talking before you mentioned like legacy burden, Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can tell us more about that. Yeah, so legacy burdens are essentially energy or pain or beliefs that we carry from outside sources. So it could come from various cultures that we exist in or parents, or it can be from past generations of deceased relatives we don't even know. It could be from the media. It can be from institutions, but essentially it's stuff that kind of gets stuck inside of us in our systems that doesn't belong to us. And one thing that's really powerful about IFS is that it actually talks about how the social and psychic coexist, and they also get kind of like intermingled with one another. And with that, it also offers us a way out of that that actually you don't have to carry all of that gunk that you collect from all of those other sources because it's not yours. Um, At some point it was, you know, meant to protect you, but if you don't need it anymore, you don't have to keep carrying it around. And I think even the simple, seemingly simple notion of saying like, that's, that's not mine. Like even that I think is really huge because yeah, I think so many times people just blame themselves for whatever it is they're going through, right? And if you can kind of have a larger perspective or of this larger context, then, then you can start to see like, no, like that's actually not mine. Like I got that from being in this institution that was trying to um, exploit me, mm-hmm. you know? something like that like uncovering the secret histories the different parts of us yeah 
in a way that's like client driven, right? Like it's, it's kind of whatever they need to know or whatever parts feel comfortable telling them actually. Uh, so it's different, right? So it's not a probey thing. It's not like, and, and it's not the therapist's curiosity that's leading or the therapist's kind of digging or like hypothesis driven questions. Hmm. It's really allowing the client to follow their own system and not pushing to reveal anything and not going for these exiled parts. Actually, I think that's a really big difference. Uh yeah. I'm, can you tell us more? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I think in therapy in general, and I think also in the way therapy is portrayed, right. We think about getting to like the root of the issue, right. Get to the vulnerability, get to the wound. And once that part like reveals its pain, then we have this catharsis and like everything feels better. I'm being a little bit facetious with that. <laughs> Nevertheless, I, I, I do think that a lot of people come to therapy with that idea. And I think a lot of therapists get trained that way. And a lot of therapists come, you know, do their work informed by it. I think where IFS corrects that attitude is that it really honors these protectors along the way, right? Like it's, it's so important to do that because there are these parts that are just constantly working for you behind the scenes, and so if a therapist comes in and is, is sort of kind of trying to push them aside or like not even really seeing them, kind of not meaning to, but effectively invalidating them, right? Because they're in place to like keep you away from the pain. If you're coming in and saying, oh, get, get me to the pain, get me to the pain, mm. then there's going to be backlash. But also there's a lot of wisdom in that person that you're not hearing, you're not understanding, you're not seeing. It's like, I'll give an example from my own life. I, I was in therapy for a long time. And when I had my first IFS session, I would just, I, I, <laughs> I had a tendency to kind of really analyze myself, right? Like I, I kind of knew like, yeah, it's, it has to do with my dad or my mom or like whatever. And I had this kind of narrative and my therapist was like, how about we slow down? And immediately I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not <laughs> slowing down. Like, and, but she persisted. She's like, I'm sorry, but I am going to ask you to slow down. And as soon as she did that, I realized that I, I'd had this kind of speedy part and, and I actually feel its energy kind of right now, right? Like just trying to like get through it, like cover it up, like keep people away from your vulnerability. Mm. But it was this kind of therapized vulnerability. Right. And like so, the intellectual story of where this came from. Yeah. Intellectual, but also like, I could also be like really expressive, you know, I could be, I mm. could, I could cry my eyes out, you know, but it wasn't really all of me. It really wasn't. And so I think IFS can be really powerful in the sense that you get to know yourself in this way that's incredibly surprising a little scary because it's there's real depth to it there's a lot of surprises that come up but ultimately it's it's really awesome and I mean awesome in the sense of like there's a lot of awe for, for yourself and kind of what your parts have done for you to survive also well, it seems like it was maybe a surprise to see that the part of you that speeds up was protecting you yeah and it had been working really hard 
for for decades and I had no idea what was it like to learn about this part of you it was humbling um I felt really grateful for it yeah and also really sad that it had to do what it did and that kind of brings me to this other point about I think if we're if we're frame if we're talking about Asians in therapy right one of the things I think that's so hard for Asian people in general, but also in therapy is this idea that we are inscrutable, you know, that, that our insides are like not understandable. Mm. And I'm realizing that that's a lot of what this part was doing. It was like trying to fit me into a certain legible therapeutic narrative. Mm. And that, that tells me that there's a lot of Asian people who don't get seen in therapy, right? Like they just, they just don't. And probably in other contexts too. Yeah. Maybe in the efforts or the desire to be seen, we translate into something, into like a therapeutic story that is legible to the therapist. Yeah. But then so many parts get edited out. Yeah. I'm wondering what it's like to try to hold all of those different parts or even like begin to imagine healing within the IFS lens, especially for Asian folks in therapy. Yeah, that's a big question. I think for me, the biggest thing is to to let people know that they're not alone and that they don't need to keep kind of like gaslighting themselves to see that a lot right I see people yeah you know especially with racism like telling themselves that it's not a big deal you know like it's not you don't really have a right to complain other people have it worse and you know those are parts that protect us totally and when your body tells you something's off like it it probably is right like that there you can trust that Mm-hmm. I think understanding all the many different forces that are at play in our subjectivity is like really a big deal, right? So there's there's white supremacy, there's intergenerational stuff, there's often immigration, there's also what happened before getting to the United States, right? That, that oftentimes we don't have explicit access to histories of colonization, war. And that's just the stuff that's you don't necessarily have like story for at all Mm. right on top of whatever it is you went through in your life which might be like emotional neglect or I mean you know all, all kinds of different experiences trauma right and so I guess what I'm trying to say is there's just so much stuff there's just so much stuff that we are only just beginning to notice and give vocabulary to that we carry that's just it's not ours how do you discern between what's not yours or ours and what is I would say there's there's two answers to that one is I mean when you get really deep into IFS meaning you know you've spent a lot of time working with your parts and maybe you have somebody supporting you in that process you can actually ask your parts 
how much of what they're carrying is theirs and how much is not. And they will give you an actual percentage. It's, it sounds a little out there, but it can happen. Hmm. But I guess before you getting to that sort of deep place where you can just sort of ask apart, um, I think it's, I think it's connecting with other Asian Americans who, and sharing stories, right? And, and when you start to hear yourself kind of mirrored in other people's stories, then you start to realize like, oh, this is like way bigger than me. Mm. You're, yeah, just, you're not, you're not the only one who's gone through X, Y, or Z. I think, I think along with that, right? Like, I, I also see a trend sometimes when it becomes at least among like second generation Asian American circles, like there can be a tendency to sort of blame the first generation, you know, immigrant, the parents basically, or like, or like calling it Asian culture, you know, which is, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. Right. It means nothing. It means (laughs) nothing. Right. Um, I mean, I think we have to think about like what, what, we here think of as Asian culture is also mediated through American culture and white supremacy, right? Like it's a stereotype a lot of the time. Mm. And so I think there's a real possibility in IFS and, and I'm sure in, in other ways of, of just starting to redefine like who you are for yourself, like your own relationship to your cultural identity, to your parents, to these parts of yourself. You know, and um, it's not, it's certainly not an easy path. It's not linear. There's no step-by-step kind of process. But I think if you can commit to that, make that commitment to yourself, it's possible. Mm. I think knowing that it's possible even is, is really big. I'm curious if you're also sharing that out of experience that it's possible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think like many other Asian Americans, I went through kind of a identity crisis slash like I hold myself up in a cocoon during COVID, right? And after the Atlanta spa shootings, you know, that really instigated this process of reckoning, grief, really like feeling the weight of the ways in which I had hid myself from myself. You know, I had hid who I was for the sake of some kind of belonging or conditional belonging. Mm. And parts of me had just had enough. It was just like, they were like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. The cost is too great. And like the cost of making yourself legible to other people. Yeah, legible or small or silent. Um, and I was fortunate enough at that time to have, you know, a good amount of autonomy in my career, like enough money. And so, you know, those were the conditions that I needed for this to happen. But yeah, I I essentially went through this process of sifting through what in my life still made sense for me and and if I wanted to keep it you know what needed to change like what in me needed to change but also what in certain relationships needed to change and that included my relationships with clients like I had to I, I just started to speak up about microaggressions and all these ways in which I had been racialized, like at my job by my clients, you know, 
Uh, and that's been really pretty amazing, actually, like really tough, but, but really fruitful. Um, you know, and I had to do the same in relationships and I had to leave certain groups behind and certain institutions. And it was, it was really hard, but, um, worth it. And, and again, yeah, possible. Well, like possible, I guess. Yeah. You're sharing about the, the work of redefining your relationship, like yourself to all of these other parts of your life. Yeah. And there was internal work that had to be done, but also real external work. I really appreciate your sharing that, like even from your perspective as a therapist and also through your own therapeutic work and self-work because I think when people hear therapists talking it can often be this prescriptive conversation where we're like recommending what people do to help themselves and it seems like in this conversation so far that you've been intent on zooming out and that it's not simply like the individual's work to heal themselves. It's like we're sitting with and holding and carrying things that are burdensome and are like legacies that aren't ours originally um, and might not even be of our parents or of our own culture. I mean, I think I've noticed even myself slow down in our conversation and wanting to feel into how heavy it can be and how sad it is when we are burdened with things that are compounded over generations. But it also feels a bit relieving because I think often clients and just myself in general will see the behavior of like, I need to stop doing this. I need to, clients will say, I need to stop feeling anxious stop compulsively checking things on my phone, stop binge eating. And it sounds like your, your intention is more of like, well, what is that actually telling us or what it might be indicating or how, how important is that behavior as a result of the protector that's That's behind it? Yep. That's exactly right. It's, it's, let's be curious about what's happening there, you Mm -hmm. know, like honor the fact that a part of you hates it. Like it, it makes this other part's job like really difficult. Mm. And you know, that part that's, that's checking your phone obsessively or binge eating. Like, what is it? What's it trying to do? You know? And how is that working for it? And, you know, another piece of IFS that you find is like, sometimes your protector parts are really young. Like, children and so when you realize that it it can really open your heart to I mean think about it right like you have these like little kid parts just like trying to help you like desperately trying to help you Mm. and they don't you know they don't really know what they're doing like you know they need a they need a grown-up who's carrying it open um and they're just trying their best And I think that can really just soften your relationship to these, these behaviors, right? It's like, oh, I see. There's something much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you that like a lot of therapists might try to just get to like, what was the literal traumatic event or experience, but it kind of like swats away the parts of us that are still alive 
and responding and acting in the ways that they're supposed to for us. Yeah. Just kind of tries to push them away and like say that self-protection isn't as important because we're in a therapeutic space. So I think one of the harms of, of a therapeutic space is like this, an, uh, an entitlement that therapists are entitled to different parts of client stories or entitled to no details. And I think it's actually really special to let clients protect themselves against us or protect themselves against the therapeutic process. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, I, I know we're, we wanted to kind of lay the groundwork of the IFS perspective because we also want to explore deeper parts of ancestral healing and parts of your own experience as you're open to sharing them in our next conversation. But I wonder if you can give us just like a little bit of a sense of how you're seeing IFS in connection to ancestral healing. Yeah. So for me, so something I didn't really speak explicitly about in IFS is this idea of we all have this innate healing capacity called the self. I don't love that term. Nevertheless, it's, it's what we got. This curious, compassionate, confident um, presence inside of us that that's, that's kind of what heals. And with that, it also brings in kind of this idea of spirit, right? Because there's a lot of cultural traditions that speak about this kind of presence inside of us, but it brings up this idea of spirituality because a lot of traditions kind of talk about how we have this capacity inside and ancestral healing just kind of brings that to another level, right? It talks about there being spirit outside of us and a kind of spirit that can bring us all of these qualities that our self-energy does, but it's also connected to like who we are, like really deeply connected to who we are in our lineages, right? And so it, it kind of broadens the scope on who we are and in the history of the world, right? This is greater global life. And when you can rely on the support of your ancestors, your well ancestors, it really like turbocharges things. I mean, if, as you can imagine, right? Like there's this resource that, that can come in and really amplify our sense of power and belonging mm. in the world. And then it can also let us know again, we're not alone. We're really not. We are the living faces of our ancestors and they have our backs. It's quite beautiful. Like even as you're illustrating it so far, because initially we start off with what we're carrying that isn't ours. And then you're deepening that sense of history or heritage to take in the strength or the power of what is well yeah those external resources that it's not simply just like a an offloading it's also about like welcoming in spirit yes yeah mm -hmm. exactly yeah and and the gifts that are in our lineages yeah surviving this long <laughs> surviving this long yes yeah well, Natalie, before we wrap up, how can people find you if they're interested in learning more about you or working with you? They can just go to my website, uh, which is www.nataliehung.com. I run a group called Reclaim Asian American Womanhood, which is open to 
Gen X and millennial women. It's an IFS informed group to help um, Asian American women heal from gendered racial trauma. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to continue talking. Likewise. Um, Thank you so much. Look forward to it. Me too. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Couch. Tune in every Wednesday, rate or review us to help grow our community and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We'd love to hear from you. So connect with us on Instagram at Bridges Mental Health. (laughs) (laughs) 